All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be back in Hebrews after a little bit of time away, depending upon which Bible you have around you. That'll be either on page 946 or 1006 uh, there in the Bible around you. Um, But I am going to ask you to, as you're getting there, to shut your eyes for just a second. Shut your eyes for just a second and listen to this sound. All right. Anybody know what that was? All right, let's do it the other way. How many of you have never heard that sound ever? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's going to be becoming more and more and more. What you just missed out on was the blessing of something called dial-up internet service. This is when the internet first started coming out and you dialed up, it took forever, it was slow as molasses. But we don't use that anymore because something better has come along, right? In a similar way, um, back in the day, there were floppy disks. You guys remember floppy disks? First, there was like the bigger ones that were truly floppy, and then came along like the three and a half by three and a half that were harder, and these would hold 1.4 megs, okay? So by comparison, my phone has 128 gigs, all right? One, so, so, so to get one gig, it would take about 700 disks. So to get to the memory that's in my phone of the little, little disk, the little floppy disk, it would take over 9,000 to have the same memory. Okay, so that's, that's how things have gone. So we don't use floppy disks anymore because we have something better. We don't use beepers anymore, right? We don't use blockbusters anymore, right? We have something better. Something better's come on. We got phones, we got streaming, all of this. As it relates to Jesus, this is what Hebrews has been hammering since the beginning. And we do not have to have a high priest anymore. We have something better. We don't have to have the repeated sacrifices of the sacrificial system anymore. We have something better. We don't need a tabernacle or a temple anymore. We don't need the old covenant anymore. We have something better. But unlike floppy disks, unlike dial-up internet... The things that have come along, like Jesus, there's not something someday going to come along that's better. Like he's it. Everything that the Old Testament was pointing to finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Like he's not just better, right? We've been talking about, I mean, the whole name of the series is Jesus is better, but he's not just better, like he is the one. And so he's not just the better mediator, He is, number one in your notes, the mediator. And he's not just a better atoning sacrifice. He is, number two, the atoning sacrifice. And he's not just a better savior. He is, number three, the returning savior. And there's not going to be another one. He is it. And so it's those three things that we're going to examine this morning. And Jesus is the mediator the atoning sacrifice, and the returning Savior. And so to get us started, let's pick up Hebrews chapter 9, where Lee left off. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so I know like we are unfortunately four weeks removed from when we did part one, right? We were supposed to do part one and part two, snow happened. And then every, every year we take a break on uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday and talked about the Sanctity of Life. So we did that last week. So we're just now getting back to it. But chapter 9 is really a cohesive whole. That's why I want to do part 1 and part 2. And part 1 really talks a lot about the old covenant. Part 2 is really more about the new covenant. And it's just kind of a comparing and contrasting. Back and forth, back and forth. Showing and highlighting the true and better redemption that Jesus offers. And so when we did the first half, we primarily talked about the old covenant. And if you remember back to then, or by way of review, we talked about uh, the good and uh, the problem and the solution. And so the good of the Old Covenant is that it foreshadowed, all right, especially the tabernacle or the temple, it foreshadowed and looked forward to the gospel, both in a mediatorial role, like God, we can't just, sinful humanity cannot just go straight to holy God. There has to be a go-between, a mediator. And the high priest served as that, temple kind of served as that. It was the go-between. So it served in a mediatorial role pointing forward, but also like with the sacrifices that were made to atone for people's sin. That was the good. It foreshadowed. The problem is that like that's all it could do. It, it had no power to save. All it could do was foreshadow and forestall, just kind of kick the can down the road. It could not save people. And so the solution then, verses 11 through 14 that we read, was that we need a better high priest with a once-for-all-time sacrifice. And so now verse 15 is coming in. Therefore, like on the basis of that, on the basis of the old covenant and the need for a better sacrifice, therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That he is the fulfillment of of everything the Old Covenant looked forward to. And so again, in your notes, number one, Jesus is the mediator. Not just a better one. He's it. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, mediator can be a dangerous word because we think we know what it means. We hear it like in the legal system, you know, arbitration or mediation. Like when we went out west this summer, I had to, you know, rent a a car. We had to rent a great big SUV because I got a big family and we so we rented this thing, and you've got to, you know, sign all this. And, like, if there's a legal dispute, we're going to go into uh, mediation. And you're going to have to, you know, you're not going to sue, and yada, 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 all this legalese, but we're going to have a mediator to decide things. And so what we think of a mediator is like somebody who comes between two groups of people and seeks to find a compromise between the two people. That's what we think of mediator. But... Friends, there is no common ground between a holy God and sinful humanity. And so Christ as mediator isn't working like a mediator with a rental car. God's holiness can't be compromised. And so Christ agrees with the Father about the ugliness of our sin. He agrees with the Father about the necessity of a sacrifice for sin. But the kicker is this. As our mediator, he agrees to be the sacrifice for our sin. Like Jesus volunteered. He willingly went to the cross for you and for me. He didn't have to. He willingly 
did that. And so, I think maybe we know that if you have been a believer for any length of time, you, you, yeah, I get that, I get that. But I think then we divorce that somewhat from, uh, you know, what that means down the road for us, that you've been a believer. Like, if he was willing to do that, to willingly lay down his life for you, if he was willing to die for you, Romans 5, while you were still his enemy, he's not now going to, like, not hang on to you now that you are his friend. I mean, Dane Ortland puts it much better in a book that my men's group is reading. He says, if Jesus went to the cross for us when we did not belong to him, he has proven he will hang in there with us now that we do. If you're in Christ, he's not going to drop you now. Like God's grace and mercy and love is not an hourglass with the sand running out, and our hope is that we die before the last grain drops out. Like every time we sin, more sand falls through. Every time we sin, more sand falls through. And we hope we make it to death before the last grain drops in, or else we're in, we're, in, we're in trouble. That is not the gospel. That is not the love of God. He is by his own definition, Exodus 34, 6, abounding. Abounding in steadfast love and mercy abounding like we need to memorize that verse just as much as we memorize john three sixteen. says that god is abounding he is overwhelming he is lavish like his love is like when you um you guys have a waffle maker at home anybody got a waffle maker you put the batter in there you put in too much batter it comes oozing out the side that's how god's love and grace and mercy is it's abounding. It oozes out the sides. It oozes out of him. He's abounding in his love and he's steadfast. He doesn't change. He's not abounding sometimes and lacking in love towards you at other times. He is always and forever steadfastly abounding in loving kindness towards his children. And so Jesus, in love then, came to be the mediator. And as a mediator, he made a way, the way, for broken sinners like us to be reconciled, made right with holy God. And through this mediatory work, Christ procures for us an eternal inheritance. Look at verse 15 again. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And so the covenant, the new covenant, is kind of like last will and testament. And in fact, in Greek, covenant... And will are the exact same Greek word. And so we all know how an inheritance works, right? Somebody throughout their life, they accumulate, you know, wealth. They accumulate a house. They have land. They have real estate. They've got a 401k. They have a retirement. Whatever it may be, they accumulate all this stuff. And then they write out a will. They prepare a will so that when they die, all that stuff will be, you know, divided up amongst people or given to a church or given to a a combination of these things as that person wishes. And so in order for the will to go into effect, what has to happen? Yeah, the person has to die. 
That's how it goes into effect. And that's the point here. It was through Christ's death that the inheritance becomes ours. And what is this inheritance? It's all the blessings that Jesus has in the Father. They become ours as co-heirs of Christ. And so practically, in this life, what this means for you, what this means for me, is that the Father watches over us with the same loving care with which He watched over Jesus. Because we are in Him. We are united to Him. It means that the Father sends His Holy Spirit to empower us in godliness and to fight sin just as He sent the Holy Spirit to Christ. It means that the Father doesn't look on you with guilt any more than He looks on Christ with guilt because you are in Him and Christ has none. That you are, he doesn't find any more fault with you than he finds with Christ because you're in Christ. Which means his love for you doesn't vacillate up and down based upon whether you're having a good day or a bad day because his love for Christ doesn't vacillate up and down. And you're in Christ. Now, does God want you to obey him? Yes. Does he love you less when you don't? No. And if you're a parent, you know this intuitively. Do you want your kids to obey you for their good? Yes. Do you love them less when they don't? No. Does your heart hurt when they don't because you see where it can lead? Yes. But do you ever, 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 ever stop loving them? No. And so the inheritance means that God has become our Father and He's interested in leading us as a Father We are His children in the world. It means that the difficulties that we face in this life are not an automatic evidence of Him disciplining us any more than the difficulties in Jesus' life were evidence of God disciplining Him. Because He didn't sin, yet He still faced trials. Could it be disciplined? Sure. Is it automatically? No. But rather, our Father is leading us, He's molding us, He's changing us, He's teaching us to become the men and women and the boys and girls that He wants us to be who worship and enjoy Him and lead others to do the same. But even in the midst of all this, it means that He will never leave us, He will never forsake us, because Jesus was forsaken for us. In our place, for our sins, He took it. He got what we deserve so that we can get what He deserved. My friends, if you are in Christ, understand you are forgiven. Past, present, future. Everything you've ever done, thought, will do, will think, say, every bit of that was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. That's why it's called good news and it's available for anybody. There's no prerequisites. It's available for anyone who will repent and believe. But as great as this inheritance is in this life, it's even better when we die, or when Jesus comes back, whichever happens first, then we inherit Christ's resurrection life, a place in heaven, a home with God forever and ever. Sin and sadness and disease and disappointment are gone. And friends, none of this is earned by us. It's given as an inheritance. We don't earn it. But then here's what's pretty crazy, though. This doesn't only apply to us on this side of the cross, okay, like Anno Domini, A.D. Christians. 
The text says this goes back and also applies to before Christ, B.C. believers as well. Like the cross of Christ is retroactive and reaches back to verse 15, cover all the transgressions of those who lived under the first covenant. And so perhaps you've wondered, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Well, they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how they were saved. They weren't saved by works. They weren't saved by keeping the law. They weren't saved by sacrifices of animals. They were saved by grace, through faith in Christ. And you say, well, how can that be? Jesus hadn't come yet. Right. I know that. And so did they. But they knew He would. They looked forward to the Christ. Their salvation was based upon the fact that Christ would come. And so in faith, they carried out all of these foreshadowings of the, sa- the Savior, of the Messiah, of the Christ, who would come. Just like we now, on this side of the cross, in faith, carry out how God has called us to live. And so regardless of which side of the cross you are on, like neither for them or for us, are our works to save us, but they are reflections of faith. And so regardless of which side of the cross you're on, every believer, every person is part of the people of God, the one people of God. Old Testament, New Testament, every single person saved by grace, through faith, based upon the blood of Jesus. Blood. And that takes us into our second point. Blood. So number one is all about Jesus is the mediator. He gives us an eternal inheritance. Number two is all about the fact that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. And that's where the blood comes in. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so... And what he's talking about is he's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the temple that Lee read about. And there's two places in there. There's, a, there's an outer court. You come into the outer court. And then you go into the temple itself. And inside the temple, there's two sections. There's the holy place, place where the priests carry out rituals daily. Lighting the menorah, burning incense. And then there's the holy of holies. And nobody goes in that except the high priest one time a year. One time a year, and he brings blood with him as a sacrifice, and he sprinkles it on all these things. And when Moses was installing the the tabernacle of the temple, they were sprinkling blood on all of this. All right, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, so they're just copies, the tabernacle, again, foreshadow, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly, 
Like Jesus would have had to keep dying and dying and dying since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so that whole section's bloody. It's just filled with stuff about blood. Like, blood. Have you ever noticed how Christians are kind of obsessed with blood? Right? I mean, you look at the songs. We picked them out on purpose this morning. Are you washed in the blood? That's freaky. Right? Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. At the end of the service, we'll sing about nothing but the blood. In the church that I grew up in, we sing about how there's P-O-W apostrophe R, pyre in the blood. And then sometimes we'll even sing about how there is a fountain filled with blood. And then on top of that, we have an ordinance or a a sacrament called communion or the Lord's Supper where we symbolically drink the blood of Jesus and eat his flesh. Now, if you grew up in the church, that's just normative. If you're outside looking in, that's weird. And that's why, in all, all honesty, that's why that's one of the first things that led to the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Back, back then, when they would have the Lord's Supper, like, if you weren't a member of the church, you couldn't even come in. When they're doing that is members only, not even in the building to watch. You got to stay outside. You cannot come in. So it'd be like us, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. If you're a visitor, if, or, or maybe you've been here a long time, if you're not an actual member, please leave. So that's what they would do. But then the Romans would hear about these people are in there eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood. And so they thought cannibalism was happening in these secret meetings. That's part of the reason they first began persecuting the church. There were other reasons that came in later, but that's one of the first. And so with all this like talk of, of, of blood, like <clears throat> we also recognize... Like, a lot of it's born out of Christianity's roots, which is Judaism. Judaism is a very, very bloody religion. The temple back then was like a butcher shop. And the priests were the butchers. And they were constantly chopping up bulls and goats and burning them. I went to pick up some meat this week from a butcher. It was a smelly place. So Why? Why is it all about blood? Again, it sounds so crazy. Is this just some barbaric ritual of Bronze Age primitives? No, the Bible says no. It says that this was God's idea. This was God's plan, not man's. And so again, why? Why blood? Well, what happens if you drain all your blood out? You die. And that was the whole point. It was to show the end result of sin. The wages of sin is death. God promised Genesis, uh, you know, if you eat from the tree, you will die. And it wasn't like an immediate death, but death is the result of sin. And so life is in the blood. No blood, no life. Leviticus 17. And so like Christians, like here is our basic belief. Humans were created by God in order to represent him on this earth. Representative rule. That's what he put us here for in Genesis chapter 1. So that through our lives, his very nature and character is put on display. Right? Representative rule. 
why we're here. But then when we rebel against God, when we reject God, we reject this purpose for our life, something has to die. Either you or something or someone in your place. And so the sacrificial system served for some 1,400 years to demonstrate that reality and point us forward to the one who was to come, Jesus, the sin bearer. God would sin once for all time, verse 26, to die for our sins so we could be forgiven, so we could be restored to a right relationship with Him. That's what this section is all about. So let me just make this as clear, crystal clear as I can. God is holy, blazingly, blindingly, frighteningly holy, pure, other, separated, completely other, perfect, sinless. We are sinful. So there is a giant chasm between us, more than we could ever estimate, between our sinfulness, His holiness. We cannot come close to God on our own. Again, think about the temple. It separated people off. You can come this far into the outer courts. That's as far as you can come. The presence of God's in there, and you can't go get it. The priests can't even get in there. Maybe one day a year separated. Isaiah 64 says that even on our best days, we are rampantly sinful. And so because of this, God is just and right and good to punish evil and wickedness and sinfulness, which includes us. We just don't like to believe that. We like to believe that we're just good people, like it's a myth. We're actually good people and we just happen to do some bad things every now and then. But if you're a good person, why do you do bad things? Well, because no one's perfect. Exactly. That's the whole problem. We're not perfect. God is. And that's what he requires. And so you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. God's holy. We're separated. Quite a predicament. Yet at the same time, God has a love to redeem. He has a love for broken sinners like you and me. And he offers truly amazing grace. And so John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so in love, Jesus came to the earth, knowing we're sinners. He resists temptation in every way. He lives perfect. He lives sinless. And in Jesus, God in the flesh, we're not talking bulls and goats here, we're talking incarnate God, went to the cross for you. To take your place, what you deserve, Jesus said, I'll take it for them. In all of God's wrath against sin, which we completely, I completely, absolutely, undeniably deserve, was taken off of me, it was put on to Jesus, and he was beaten, and he was bloodied, and he suffered and died in my place for my sin as my substitute. Because of God's abounding, steadfast love, grace, mercy. And so at the cross we see on the one hand that God is holy and just and righteous. And on the other hand we see that He is gracious and merciful and loving. And that in Jesus He made a way not to deny His character but to bring redemption to us through Christ. To not deny justice but also not to give us eternal damnation that we deserve. He did this through 
Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so question to those of you who maybe don't know Christ. Like, you know, maybe it's not a question, it's an, it's, a, it's, it's an imperative. Trust Christ. He is the way, singular. There's no other way. But he, like, you're like, oh, why can't there be other ways? How about we think about this? He made a, a way. And he didn't have to make any ways, and he made a way. So trust him. Today, if you have trust him, praise God, keep following him. But if you haven't, some of you need to today trust him for real. You've been playing around with it for a long time. Trust him. And the Bible says if you confess your sins to Jesus, you place your faith in him, then his life and his death and his resurrection becomes yours. Your sin, your shame, your guilt, it goes to him. There's a transaction that takes place. There's an exchange. And you get, like he gets all that you deserve and you get all that he deserves. That's the inheritance. That's the exchange. And now through Jesus, God's not angry with you anymore, nor will he ever be. Because you are in Christ. And he can't be angry at Christ. Christ is perfect. Jesus died for sins, past, present, and future. Verse 26 again. Once for all. So the floppy disk sacrificial system is gone. The dial-up internet of the sacrificial system, that's over. This is the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice. Trust him. And if you're a believer in here, I want to call you to trust him as well. It's not about... like We read that phrase, once for all. Just want to camp out on that. It's not about your faith being once for all. Because, sorry to tell you, you're gonna, you haven't sinned for the last time. You're going to be unfaithful at times. So it's not about your faith being once for all. It's His salvation that was once for all. You don't save you. He saves you. Richard Phillips puts it this way. Yes, absolutely. We must receive Him by faith. But it's not upon our faith that salvation relies, but upon him of whom it can be said once for all. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Let's finish this up. Number three, Jesus is the returning Savior. Look at verse 27. And just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we learn three quick things here. Number one, we're all going to die at some point. Right? Just as it's been appointed for man to die once, we are all going to die. I've said it before, but Probably I'm doing your funeral or you're coming to mine. We are all going to die. Welcome to Providence. <laughs> but it is a reality. We are going to die. Every single one of us. The death rate is 100%. 
And that's why what we talk about in here isn't playing around. This isn't theoretical. This isn't self-help. There's going to be a day where each one of us is on our deathbed. And we die. And if you are not in Christ, then you get the second thing we see here, which is judgment. You get condemnation for the life that you lived here on earth. You're judged for your rebellion. You're judged for your rejection of God. And you're condemned and you're sent to hell. Which is eternal, conscious torment forever. Not a fun thing to talk about. But a real thing. And a horrible thing. And you can rail your fist all you want at God about that, but you're not God. You can say, I don't like that. Doesn't matter. You don't get a vote. You're not God. God is. But what you can have, while you can't have a vote, what you can have is you can have hope. Through the gospel. Because Jesus is the mediator. And because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, there is hope. And if you trust in Christ by faith as your Lord and Savior, you have no reason to fear judgment to come because Christ has already faced your judgment. All of God's fury against sin and wrath that you've done, Jesus has paid it. So he's saying he paid it all. Not Jesus paid it some and I'll pay a little bit later. Paid it all. He's atoned for your sin. And so for all those who are in Christ, judgment isn't scary. But rather it's an open door into everlasting life. And there may be rewards handed out. In fact, there will be rewards handed out. But there's zero condemnation. There's zero jealousy. Romans 8 is true then, just as it's true in this life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was condemned for us. But then the third thing we see, so death, judgment. Third thing we see is that Jesus is going to return. Look at verse 28 again. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's already done that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And so the second coming of Jesus won't be Christmas time in the sense of a baby in a manger, meek and mild, but glory and power coming on the clouds. And this, listen, this is the next big ticket item on God's agenda. Like there's nothing between now and then. Like that's the next thing. He will appear in an instant and every eye will see him. Like this is going to happen in world history. There is a certain year and there is a certain month and there is a certain day that has been fixed that only God knows about when Christ will appear again in world history. It's imminent. And he comes not to bear sin. Again, he's already done that. But to bring salvation, like salvation finally and fully from all that's gone wrong in this world. And so, I mean, I talk about it so often because it's so true and it's so perfectly fitting 
J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, the last one, The Return of the King. Once the ring is destroyed, Samwise Gamgee says to Gandalf, does this mean that all the sad things are going to come untrue? And because Christ is returning, that's exactly what it means. That's what this salvation is talking about. Salvation from all that's been broken in this world. The brokenness of this world. When He comes again, all the sad things will come untrue. So in this world, fear and anxiety and depression and injustice and tears and sickness and disease and dementia and desertion and death will become untrue. It will be a final rescue from all the powers of hell and the curse and the fallout of sin. All of it. Like in His first coming, Jesus came to defeat sin and death. In His second coming, He will make them extinct. And so what are we to do until then? Verse 28 again. Eagerly wait. Like it's Advent season again. Advent's all about expectation. It's all about anticipation. It's all about longing for His appearance. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That's us. That's the church. We're waiting for Him to come. And all of history is moving to this moment. Right now. We are moving forward. We are marching forward to this moment. And it's coming And listen, it's the fact that that day is coming that transforms your present right now and gives you hope and power to press on. Because that day is coming. It's a fixed day. And so we can press on. We have the strength to press on. We are not trapped in a cycle here. Jesus has died once for all time and we are on a journey towards the day when he will appear and make all things new. He's not a floppy disk that's going to be replaced someday. He's it. Everything looks to Him. Everything hinges on Him. Everything revolves around Him. The mediator. The atoning sacrifice. And the, and we could replace all these these with our returning Savior. Who loves you. And so press in and press on. Let's pray. Father, give us the strength. Give us the faith to know that we know that we know that we know that you are, that you, Jesus, are coming. And may that then strengthen us for the trials that we face in this life, the difficulties that we face of every stage of life, whether we are a child, there's difficulties as children, some more than others. There's difficulty as teenagers. There's difficulty in our 20s and 30s. Moving to middle ages, there's new and different trials and difficulties. And then as we move into our senior years, there's new trials and difficulties 
And you are with us in each and every step of the way. And help us to know the fact that you are coming. That day is fixed. Our hope will be realized to give us strength to press on now. Looking forward to the eternal inheritance we have. Father, help us to not be scared of death. For those that are in Christ. But Father, maybe for those who are in this room who do not yet know you, Lord, they should have a healthy fear of death. And so not out of scare tactics, Lord, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, open their eyes to see their need and to see your glory and to repent and believe. And for those of us who have made that decision, Help us to, as we talked about, press on. Give us strength that we don't have. Give us faith that we don't have. We are weak and we praise you that you once for all time have made a sacrifice, have drawn us to yourself. Father, we believe Help our unbelief. In Christ's name, amen.